This podcast has been brought to you with the support of Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. With a Wise account, you can send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Whether you're traveling through Asia, freelancing in France, or buying that dream property in Oz, Wise is the easy way to connect all your finances internationally. You can even send money home to mum in minutes. Join 16 million customers and learn how the Wise account could work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com. Kia ora, I'm Chelsea Daniels. It's February 28th and this is The Front Page, a daily podcast presented by the New Zealand Herald. The government's moved forward with plans to table a bill to disestablish the Māori Health Authority, tabling a bill this week to start the process of closing the authority down. It follows through on a campaign promised by all three coalition partners and was a part of their 100-day plan. So, why is the authority being shut down after less than two years of operation? And where does this sit within the government's other health priorities? Today on the front page, NZ Herald health reporter Isaac Davison joins us to discuss how the government plans to turn around an under-pressure health system. Isaac, why are National Act and NZ First all determined to close down the Māori Health Authority? Yeah, this is something all, all three of these parties um, campaigned to scrap during the election. It really just comes back to their core belief that healthcare should be based on need, not race. It's sort of part of a broader backlash which happened under the previous government around uh, issues like co-governance and so forth. Um, there are other rationales which I've talked about, partly that it's just more bureaucracy. They, they want to sort of lean a public service and so forth, so they feel that it's just adding more numbers and costs onto the public service. And one other reason that Shane Retty, the health minister, has talked about is is, is really it's more centralisation and putting decision-making in, into Wellington. Obviously, this government doesn't want to roll back the reforms and tafatua and so forth, but it does want more more local decision-making. So it feels really that Iwi and Hapu should, should be at the centre of these decisions, not people in Wellington. I mean, the, the authority only launched in July 2022, right? Is it perhaps not a little too early to judge if the authority has actually been successful or not? Yeah, it's very early. It's really only been in place for, what, 18 months now. There was one review after about nine months, which was quite critical around sort of the hiring of staff and the tension it had with the ministry. But that was really written off by people involved in the sector as, as, as premature and possibly quite politically motivated um, I guess from a political standpoint for the government, the longer something's bedded in, the, the harder it is to scrap, the harder it is to get rid of it. And they would argue that, well, we've got the mandate to get rid of this. We all campaigned on it. It's in our manifestos and we got in overwhelmingly. So why wait? We want to get rid of it. Iwi leaders were not happy with this decision. Uh, even before they rushed to table the bill before a Waitangi tribunal on it, has the government offered an alternative plan of how they can actually aim to tackle poorer health outcomes for Māori? No, they haven't really clearly articulated an alternative at this point. I guess it's important to note it hasn't completely gone away that the health authority will be replaced by sort of a unit or a health directorate within the Ministry of Health. So some of that work will be ongoing. But it's really important to note that this health authority came out of two major pieces of work. So there was the Waitangi Tribunal on Health, the Health Claim as it's known, and the Health and Disability Review. And these 
strongly recommended a standalone entity, something transformative, you know, that if we keep doing what we've always done, we won't get better results for Māori and it's time for a Māori approach and an entity which is built on tikanga values. I guess government might argue that by fixing the health service, they will fix Māori health, that they'll bring everyone up, but that sort of fails to acknowledge that, you know, by just singularly focusing on, on clinical need, you're failing to acknowledge sort of historical problems around discrimination and, and poor outcomes for, for Māori. Now, a former member of the board that helped create it is taking legal action through the Waitangi Tribunal, arguing the removal of the authority is a breach of the treaty. We believe it needs to stay. We believe that our people need it. I think it is a racist reaction to a very small amount of progress and it's going to set things back a considerable way. I guess folding it back into Health New Zealand as well, that's not really transformative, right? No, no, that's right. Um, You know, the whole idea is that this was a treaty obligation, really, and um, in particular around sort of self-determination, that you need to let Maori create a system for themselves, monitor it themselves, and take a sort of more holistic approach. And I think just folding it back into the ministry um, sort of fails to meet those sort of objectives. Isaac, when you speak to those in the health system or patients struggling through it, say... What do they tell you about what they want to see done by the government to make their lives better? The persistent theme in all my conversations with people in the in the, in the health system is is understaffing, and you know there's a growing aging population in New Zealand with more complex illnesses, and there's a shrinking aging workforce, which in many places is, is burning out and is working in sort of aging hospitals and infrastructure, and this is everywhere in the public system: GP clinics, nursing, hospitals, specialists. ED doctors told me last year that it's the worst it's ever been. GPs, you know, about two-thirds of them are retiring in the next decade. They're struggling to find more staff. Some are closing. Others are lifting fees. And in nursing, which had some really significant pay rises recently, conditions are still considered quite difficult, and so some are still moving to Aussie. So really at the heart of nearly every problem is a lack of staff. I mean, the staffing issues around the country just seem so severe, don't they? Um Are there any plans at the moment to tackle this? Yeah, so it has been quantified in terms of those gaps. At Stocktake last year showed that there were about 4,800 nurses short at the moment and about 1,700 doctors and shortages in other areas too. The Health Minister Shane Reddy has made this his number one priority and he's laid out sort of short, medium and long-term plans. The short one is immigration, basically making it more flexible and easier for health staff to come over here. I mean, ideally in, in the long term, New Zealand will be able to um, have a homegrown workforce. But in the meantime, that's one of the quick fixes. Medium term, it's really about retention and wages and conditions. You know, Australia offers better pay. And Shane Retty's really said, to an extent, we can't compete with Australian pay. So how else do we keep people here? And that's just really about conditions, work-life balance, opportunities, minimum staffing levels, say, maximum hours, that sort of thing. Just making it more appealing to work in New Zealand and stay in New Zealand. And in the long term, the big plan is just train more local doctors. Um, New Zealand's hugely dependent on foreign doctors. About 40% come from overseas. COVID turned that tap off and now there's a global fight for doctors. So we really just need to make it more of our own doctors, basically. And you mentioned losing out to Aussie as well. Thousands of health professionals have registered to work over there. That's really no surprise, hey? Yeah, it's a long-standing problem. I spoke to a nurse this week who works as a contractor in Australia. She earns about up to $100 an hour, that would be twice as much as she would get in New Zealand even after the recent pay equity deal. She gets uh, return flights, she gets free house and a car. So as you said, 
may not be able to compete with that sort of money. So we have to look into other ways to basically keep people here. There are plans for a third medical school in the country. Have those moves been welcomed by the sector? Yeah, everyone agrees that we need more local doctors, but there's disagreement about how we get there. So Labor's plan was to use the existing medical schools, so at Otago and Auckland, and scale up. Nationals agrees with that, but would boost those numbers in those existing schools, but also wants a third medical school. It believes we need another one because we need one with a rural focus to fill those rural gaps and also a sort of fast-track degree, so this would just be for graduates, so getting a medical degree within about four years. There's been a bit of a controversy about this, and it's partly because of the closeness between uh, the National Party and, and um, Waikato's vice-chancellor, so it's feeling that that may have influenced sort of decision to get behind the school. It's also considered a bit untested and slightly risky. There's been reporting in the past that National MPs themselves questioned the cost of setting up a new medical facility. Uh, the university will have to fundraise about $100 million of its own money, and as we know, the tertiary sector's struggling for funding as it is, and this has led to ACT Party itself, one of the coalition partners, wanting basically another business case before they get this over the line, so that's underway now. Will there even be enough students to fill it as well? I mean, it comes at a time as, what, NCEA standards are quite low at the moment, aren't they? Uh, yeah, I think it would be a matter of changing the thresholds uh, for getting in, so... I don't think that will be a significant problem. I guess the question is, can you get this up and running? So the deadline is to have it open by 2027. And the medical school, is a, it's, it's a huge piece of work. It's not just sort of getting the building in place and lecturers. It's all the work that goes around it and all the capacity and departments and, and, and so forth. So it's still a bit of uncertainty about that. And a doctor whose landlord is the health minister says the GP funding model is chronically underfunded. What I want him to hear is that we're at breaking point. This is a crisis. Shane, it's time you start doing some CPR, charging up the defibrillator and fixing this problem. We can't wait too much longer. Let's run through some of other parts of this 100-day plan, hey? So... The government wants to set five major targets for the health system. Have we seen anything emerge of these targets yet? We haven't seen the detail yet, but we do know what the targets will be. So they've laid them out. So the five targets are shorter stays in emergency departments, faster cancer treatment, lifting up immunisation rates for children, shorter wait times for seeing your first specialist appointment, and the last one is shorter wait times for surgery. So the detail on just what those will entail is, is yet to come, but it'll be coming out soon because it's within the first 100 days. Many of these are already measured. This just makes them into hard targets, so it's really cracking the whip on some areas which are languishing and creates some sort of accountability and transparency. So the previous government scrapped targets and said it would replace them, but that never happened, and National was quite critical of that. Important to note as well that you need to introduce targets with adequate resourcing, You know, otherwise you just get perverse incentives and gaming of the system, and that's likely to be something that Labour and opposition sort of um, angles in on. I do remember seeing those targets back in 2017. Are they going to be similar to the last national governments or are there kind of some tweaks? Uh, yes, yeah, some tweaks around. Uh, some of them are very similar. Immunisation, emergency departments are basically identical and sort of the greater emphasis is now is really around those wait times for surgery and specialist appointments, which were a problem before COVID but have just completely blown out now. So that is a greater area of focus. 
generally also acknowledges they need to be realistic, otherwise you, you can risk getting sort of gaming of the system. We've also seen the government as part of that 100-day plan repeal smoke-free plans. Uh, now, has this government indicated at all since then what they plan to do instead of dealing with smoking? It hasn't laid out an alternative vision at this point. It says it's looking into them, but it hasn't announced a new plan. One of the things it says it will do is reform the rules around vaping. And this is about getting the balance right. There are already vaping regulations in, but getting that balance right around using it as a way to stop people smoking, adult people from smoking, while also ensuring you don't get young people or people that haven't smoked before at all to start vaping or getting addicted. Beyond that, we don't know much Um, There was some reporting this morning that a number of alternatives have been put to the minister, including raising the purchase age to 25, banning sales around schools. But that minister, Associate Health Minister Casey Costello, has apparently rejected those. So we still don't quite know what might be put in place. Government has been warned that by repealing the previous government's measures that they won't hit that target of being smoke-free by 2025. One of the more controversial health moves came just a few days after the government took office and they chose to opt out of international health regulation amendments. Is that a pretty rare move? Yeah, it's an unusual one. It's definitely rare. It's quite technical, but it's really around New Zealand's sort of signs up to these um, global rules which help it manage things like such as a pandemic. It would guarantee that it got an early warning if a risky pandemic was coming down the pipeline. The thing that it's actually opposing, it's very technical, but it's just around a shorter time span for when we might agree to these rules. The decision to opt out of it seems to be influenced by New Zealand First and in particular maybe more fringe elements within New Zealand First, which are more sceptical about these international bodies and maybe more conspiracy-minded ideas around sort of globalism and so forth. So that seems to be where that's come from. This is a bit weird, to be honest. There were people who took a very strong anti-vaccination stand and promote conspiracy theories, and none of that is good uh, for trying to get a rational approach to stopping pandemic. We're just taking a a beat as a new government coming in to say, hey, listen, uh, before we sign up to any international agreements, we are always going to act in New Zealand's national interest. We want to make sure there is a national interest test that has been met, and then we'll move forward on that basis. Looking at that decision, smoke-free laws and scrapping of the Māori Health Authority, are medical professionals that you've spoken to actually on board with these priorities from the government? I think those measures you mentioned, like around Māori Health Authority and this unusual one with World Health, has burned a bit of goodwill, particularly among public health, where those areas lie. But other priorities obviously been welcome, especially around workforce, but particular the tobacco stuff, I think, has given them a bit of a false start and they've got to work to overcome that now. And I guess the the deal with the World Health Organization um, stepping back from those amendments, really not on anyone else's radar other than New Zealand first, right? I mean, that was kind of a came out of left field and, and nowhere. So what's the priority? Yeah, that's right. Even this, what they're opposing to is a very technical minor thing. It's really about they want a national interest test to make sure that we all want to sign up to this so you know they feel that we're being undermined as a sovereign nation but that would have happened anyway that would have happened when it came to the next step and you were talking about the substantial part of these guidelines so yeah it is a bit unusual michael baker the public health academic described it as baffling and isaac overall do you think the health sector is optimistic about what the government's plans are for them uh, uh, yeah i wouldn't use the word optimistic i think uncertainty 
and concern are sort of the most common themes in the conversations that I've had. It helps that Shane Reddy has acknowledged that that it's a crisis, that the health system in crisis. I think that sends a signal to the front line that he's taking this seriously. It's probably also a bit of politics in that as well that sort of sheets home the blame to the previous government and suggests that this is not all going to be changed overnight. He's made some sort of immediate steps that I think that will build confidence, especially around putting more security in ED and uh, extending breast screening out. These are just show that they're a little bit nimble and they've been celebrated by the parts of the sector that benefit from those. And you've got to note that the issues that he's dealing with, are, uh, they're really entrenched, they're significant, especially these issues around uh, workforce shortages, long waiting lists, um, there's uncertainty among the people I've spoken to about how national exactly are going to get us out of that hole, I think. Ricky acknowledges that he said to, to me the other day, what was hard for Labour, that'll be hard for us. Thanks for joining us, Isaac. That's it for this episode of The Front Page. You can read more about today's stories and extensive news coverage at nzherald.co.nz. The Front Page is produced by Ethan Sills with sound engineer Paddy Fox. I'm Chelsea Daniels. Subscribe to The Front Page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts and tune in tomorrow for another look behind the headlines.